Welcome to E-Commerce with Coffee, a podcast powered by Amber Engine, where we share e-com secrets for brands over your favorite brew. We start with the caffeine and then leap enthusiastically into behind-the-scenes e-com insights that led to the success of our guests. I'm Nate Svoboda, and I'm about to serve you up the best. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to an episode of E-Commerce with Coffee. Today, I get to speak with Andrew Davis. He's a keynote speaker and a best-selling author who's written several books, he's worked for the Muppets, and he speaks at over 50 events every year to audiences of all shapes and sizes. Now today, we're really gonna be focusing on how we can all think big about brand and what kind of legacy you should want to leave. So Andrew, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Nate. I got my coffee. I'm all ready to go. Let's do this. No, I love that, right? You're you're known for your enthusiasm. I imagine caffeine plays a role in your life. What's your poison to pick? It, I, it, caffeine plays a huge role in my life. I uh, usually get up really early in the morning. I brew a huge pot of 10 cups of coffee. Uh, my poison is just Starbucks dark roast Verona. Like I put extra scoops in there so it's really dark. And then I sit down and get to work. So it's not, you know, I'm not a coffee connoisseur by any means, but I definitely consume my fair share of, uh, of just drip coffee. Uh, Sounds like you like strong coffee, then. uh, Really strong coffee. Yeah. The the more, the stronger it is, the better. I love that. I usually am, uh, I'm more of the medium roast guy. So I'm just kind Mm. of a, you know, a latte, whatever. I'm trying out tea today, though. I'm trying, I'm starting to have a little bit of stomach stuff. So I figured, yeah, so a little bit of oolong tea. It's pretty nice. Definitely not the same, but it gives you that (laughs) little bit of kick, the little kickstart that you need in the morning, you know? So whatever you got to do. It's very true. I, I do. I, I'm a, uh, I'm one of those that does some herbal tea at night. So I do, okay. you know, some chamomile to get me into the, in, into bed. Yeah, no, I've done that before too. And honestly, I've found that it works. I just need to be better about it. Got to make myself yeah. do it every night. <laughs> you got to make it probably routine. better. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, there's it's better than some of the other things you can be drinking at night. Um, well, so, you know, Andrew, diving right into it, right? You speak at a lot of events every year. You've written a number of books, including, you know, the bestseller Brandscaping, which I'm going to ask you to talk about in a minute. And you're known for your enthusiasm. Talk to us about what got you started down this path and made you so passionate about digital marketing, customer experience, the whole gamut. Well, I mean, I started my career in the television world. Um, and, I, you know, I, you mentioned I worked at the Muppets. I worked for the Jim Henson Company. And that's actually where I wor- learned the power of building great marketing because the truth is the Jim Henson Company doesn't make a lot of money on the movies or the television shows or Sesame Street or any of that stuff. Where, where they really make their money is selling licensed material, right? So like, you know, if you like Big Bird, you buy yourself a Big Bird pillowcase and you buy a Big Bird sleeping bag. And next thing you know, you've got a bunch of Sesame Street stuff for your kids all around the house. Well, that's essentially what I realized working there that, you know, if you create great content and a great brand experience, um, people will buy anything from you. And in fact, they'll buy stuff they didn't know they needed. And so, uh, when I left the Jim Henson company, I started a, a marketing agency with a friend of mine, and I very quickly realized that it's actually really hard to create a great experience if you're just focused on acquiring new customers and delivering new products out the door. What you've really got to do is actually build a great experience for the consumers you have, even if you only have 10 
you know, initial customers, that experience has to be so good that they feel something. And um, that's when I really, you know, started to see that there was an opportunity to help people uh, leverage uh, a better experience for the products and services they were selling and, and find a better way to, you know, market their, their products and services, just using essentially referrals as one of the giant engines to make it, make it work. And that passion uh, you know, spilled over into writing books and sharing with people what I'd learned from building other brands and working with lots of, you know, companies and, and uh, founders and, you know, you know, e-commerce providers that it was really all about building a great experience. Well, I love I love a lot of what you well, I love everything you just said, but you know, what really stands out to me, you know, a lot of times when I'll speak to people, they talk about the importance of um, exposing exposing yourself to content outside of your normal industry, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, the, it sounds like you made a little bit of a shift in what you were doing, but you took a lot of those learnings with you. Can you talk about your feelings on, you know, how important is it for a content creator to have that exposure to new areas, new groups outside oh. of specifically who they're trying to target and sell to? It's crucial. I mean, uh, look, like I think true innovation and creativity comes from um, being uncomfortable. Uh, and it comes from you forcing yourself to make connections between things you didn't think were relevant and what you do. Uh, and I'll give you a quick example. I don't know if you've ever heard of Roto Eye Drops. Um, yeah. Is, okay. So Roto Eye Drops, you know, is eye drops like a Visine for you know for your eyes if you don't if you're not familiar with the brand. But if you go and you look at every one of the other manufacturers of eye drops, they all have like a beautiful woman with gorgeous eyes on their homepage. And, you know, then they tell you how like their solution will make your eyes feel better and, and less drowsy and more, you know, watery when they're supposed to be watery. Well, Roto Eye Drops, when they were really trying to penetrate the US market, they're a Japanese company. They were having trouble. They were going to all the pharmaceutical, you know, conventions. They were going to CVS and Walgreens and all the retailers trying to get their product carried in stores and it was not working. No one wanted their product because it looked like and felt like every other product in the marketplace. That's when Roto Eye Drops did exactly what we're talking about. They decided to get uncomfortable and instead of going to, the, you know, spending their time and energy at pharmaceutical conferences and trying to get, you know, optometrists to tell people to buy Roto Eye Drops, they went to a gaming convention. And they, they, they first went and observed, right? They realized, oh my gosh, all these people are staring at screens all day long. They're not blinking. And as a result, their eyes are drying out and then they're having eye pain. So the next, uh, you know, within months, they decided, you know what? This is our target market. It's gamers. And they, they bought a little booth at, at the PAX convention, which is a, it's called the Penny Arcade Convention. And they went and put up their booth. Now, their booth wasn't just like, hey, eye drops. And it didn't have a picture of a pretty girl with gorgeous eyes they actually set up a booth uh called stare wars like s-t-a-r-e wars okay and they were going to give ten thousand dollars to the person who stared the longest without blinking and then they made it like a double elimination thing right and they took off like their product just exploded as a result in this one little niche community and they never would have come up with this if they weren't thinking about getting uncomfortable, if they weren't aware that a new experience might help them connect the dots between a new opportunity. And today, 
their product is so so successful, you can go to CVS, you can go to Walgreens, you can go to Publix or your local grocery store, and you can pick up Roto Eye Drops. So look, it, 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 not just for content creators, for marketers and business owners specifically, you need to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And the farther outside of your sphere of knowledge you go, the better the connections will be and the easier the opportunities will be to see. So, you know, if you sell coffee uh, and you think your audience is coffee drinkers, you know, go to, um, you know, a sleeping convention and see what you find. You know, that's going to make you uncomfortable because it's the opposite of what you're trying to do. But you'll see opportunity everywhere. No, I love that. And, and you know, I, I've tried to apply that to my personal life, right, where, you know, growth only comes from being uncomfortable, right? Or, yeah. you know, I, I heard a quote recently, you know, uh, a comfort zone is a great place, but not very many things grow there. Right. So it's not, you know, it, it totally applies. Um, Absolutely. I think some of this probably, or what I'm about to say or ask ties into what we were just discussing, but, you know, you talk to your audiences and challenge them to think big about their business and about brand. What do you mean by that? And what do you want your audience to leave your session thinking, feeling, believing? Well, I guess, uh, okay, so the, the, the think big idea is, you know, it's really easy to get caught up in the mundane and the day-to-day -day and the next thing you want to develop or the next product you want to release or the next audience you want to target or the next campaign you need to execute. That can very quickly overwhelm the original idea uh, and reason you got started. Um, and I think the bigger you think, the more ambitious your goals are, the more motivated and inspired your audience is. I know you had Kat on you know, recently and she talked a lot about mission-driven uh, you know, e-commerce and mission-driven product and mission-driven companies. And I think that's thinking big, right? Like I want to change the world with the product or service I'm delivering. I don't want to just sell more of the stuff, right? Um, and the bigger you think, the more ambitious you are, I think the more people you inspire to go on the journey with you. And that's, those are the people that leave a legacy, right? Um, you know, just kind of thinking about the next thing you need to accomplish or the next small goal you have, uh, isn't really leaving a legacy. It's just a milestone on a, a short journey that we're on. Um, and, and, you know, when it comes to the speeches for me, it depends on the speech. Like, you know, I have a speech called loyalty loop, which is all about inspiring people to think about building a better, experience for the customers they have and at the, the end of the day all i want people to be inspired to think about think big about is attaching an emoji to the the entire experience they deliver for the clients and customers they already have so when they get that box you know what are they feeling the instant they open it not not what do they see not what do they get not are they happy with the product what is the overall experience up until that point feeling like and attach an emoji to that because that kind of big thinking will start to change the way you treat the little things um, or when I'm talking about the cube of creativity which is just four constraints that you can add to any creative or product or uh, you know initiative um, that help you actually come up with better solutions faster. The goal is to just get people to embrace constraints. You know, a lot of new companies or smaller companies complain about the resources they don't have, but true innovation and true opportunity comes out of actually seeing all those constraints as, as an opportunity to create something only the way you can. And if the pandemic taught us anything, it's actually that. It's, it's that if you embrace the constraints, you'll find creative solutions uh, to your business challenges, your product challenges, your market fit, your, your customer challenges, and you'll be able to come through them in a way only you can. And it helps you ignore 
all the advice and insight you're getting from other people who aren't in the situation you are in. So that, I don't know if that helped Nate, but that's, I, I want people to think big always. Um, no, yeah. It will change your perspective. No, it, it, it absolutely did make sense. And, you know, I know you have all of these different topics you speak on. You have a number of different strategies. I, I wish we could dive into every single one, right? I feel like there's a, it's immensely valuable, each individual one. But so, you know, one thing I want to latch on from what you said, you know, you talked about uh, legacy, and I mentioned this at the beginning of the show. You know, what would you say, and you did just explain this a little bit, but just to really pin the nail on it, what would you say is the difference between growing a business and leaving a legacy? And maybe what's an example of a business that you think has done a good job of this? Sure. Uh, so the, the key difference between growing a business and leaving a legacy is uh, someone who leaves a legacy or a company that leaves a legacy is one that that leaves something there long after they're gone, the person or the business, that they've made a, such a big impact on the, the people they served that the, 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 you know, the impact is longer lasting um, than the last product they delivered. Um, and for me, a great example of this is, is a woman named Jenny Doan, who I met a few years ago, uh, that was it's like, seven or eight years ago now. Um, and she runs a business in a little town called Hamilton, Missouri. And she, when I first met her, I went into this little town, Hamilton, Missouri is only 200 people, by the way. And so, uh, sorry, it's 1200 people. I walked into town and I was like looking for, you know, what made this town unique. And I walked into her store and, uh, she sells quilts. Okay, so her product is quilts. And I'm thinking, how does this woman in a town of 1,200 make any money? Because if you know anything about the quilt business, it's pretty simple. You make a quilt. It takes you nine months to make a quilt. And if you can only make 1.3 quilts a year, to make a living wage, you've got to sell you know, your quilts at like 30 grand a pop, like just to make a living wage. And I'm thinking, how does she make this work here? And I asked her, what's her vision? What's her big idea? What is, what's her dream for her little company? And she says, I want to turn Hamilton, Missouri into the Disneyland of quilting. That's what she told me. And I was like, this woman is crazy, right? Like that, I thought, you know, this is never going to happen. This little town is nothing. And I told her, I gave her a business card. I said, stay in touch. I want to see how it goes. And a few months later, they started sending me YouTube videos she was uploading. And she had this idea where she was teaching people how to quick quilt. And the idea is instead of taking nine months, you could make a quilt in as little as 30 days. And I thought, this is great. Like, this is genius. Some of her quilts you could make in as little as a day. And so all of a sudden, she had a, a whole audience of people all over the world, 250,000 subscribers within six months, watching these videos on how to quick quilt. And she turned the Missouri Star Quilt Company into a company that sells the pre-cut fabric to make quick quilts so you don't have to do the cutting one of the steps you can you know eliminate and and get make more efficient is actually this right um, and all of a sudden she says you know what I, this isn't my dream my dream is to leave a legacy to transform Hamilton Missouri and turn it into the Disneyland of quilting so she started an ad on YouTube for 50 bucks a week, inviting her subscribers to come visit the Missouri Star Quilt Company in Hamilton, Missouri. Now, there's no international airport there. It's an hour and a half from any like major airport. Uh, it's literally the middle of nowhere. And people started showing up. And today, she has turned the Missouri Star Quilt Company into a $150 million a year business. And they have thousands of people visiting every single week. They do 5,000 orders every single day online. People come from as far away as the Middle East to the middle of nowhere in Missouri to visit 
the Missouri Star Quilt Company, and that is leaving a legacy. She has transformed that town. She employs 200 people uh, from their county. She's the largest employer in the county, and all of a sudden, that legacy is going to outlive the Missouri Star Quilt Company. Uh, that town will be forever changed, and every person in it and all the people who visit will be forever changed. That is a real legacy. And, you know, I, I love that because it sounds, from what I know about brandscaping, right, and I'm maybe stealing your thunder a little bit here, you know, part of the context of that book is, you know, you put your consumer first and you identify, you know, what are other brands in my network or in my ecosystem yeah. that are complementary so we can amplify our message. And so it sounds, and, you know, in addition to like content generation and all that, you know, building your brand should be at the foundation of what can I provide someone else, right? And so it sounds like Absolutely. that's exactly what she was doing. And I mean, that's obviously, exactly I'm sure there were a lot of naysayers that probably, uh, probably would have, uh, you know, made her feel a little bit down. But she obviously saw something other people didn't, and she she strove towards it. Yeah, well, I mean, to be honest, there's another town in America that's known as the quilting capital of the world, and they are very traditional quilters, meaning they kind of believe that quick quilting is a hack. It's a shortcut, and it's illegitimate, and if you do that, you're not a real quilter. You know, she she has a whole community of people who don't believe this is how you really quilt. But for Jenny Doan, her mission was to, you know, help people embrace quilting. And one of the biggest hurdles is how long it takes. So she listened to their concerns. She found a way around it and she delivered on the promise to teach you how to make a quilt in as little as a day. And she's delivered on that constantly. She's focused squarely on what exactly can I do to help my audience be better? By the way, she has a print magazine. Like this is a year, this is an age where, you know, no one uses print, but she has a print magazine that makes $2 million a year in revenue. They send out a print magazine every quarter. It's $7 a quarter to buy the magazine and people collect it. It's like a collectible. People have shelves where they showcase their quick quilting magazine. I think it's called the patch. Um, But you, you know, again, it's because she listened to her audience. They said they wish they had the best tutorials that were YouTube videos, by the way, in, in a book uh, and that they could put on their shelf. And she said, sure, let's do it. Like, here's, you know, buy them now. Uh, and just clearly understanding that your audience comes first always will make a huge impact in the way you build your business. So you know, I know this is just one example of, you know, someone who had a great idea and they created content that spoke to their specific consumer, right? You know, consumer preferences and expectations change constantly and, you know, arguably even more so now than ever before. Can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, or break down for us, you know, the history of video content for brands, right? How it has been used in the past and really how we're seeing it be used successfully today. Yeah, well, I mean, if you just, even if you, uh, the the agency I started in 2000 was focused squarely on video because Jim Costco, my business partner, and I both came out of television. He was a journalist, and I was, you know, working at the Jim Henson Company and the Today Show and, you know, producing stuff for all sorts of news programming. And so we, you know, that was in the days where if you wanted to distribute a video, it had to be on DVD or CD-ROM. For you youngsters listening, that's like a disc you put into your computer and it spins around. Anyway, that's how we got our video distributed. And, you know, if you think about the transformation in just the last 22 years from being, you know, 
a very heavy lift to distribute some video that was high quality to now being able to pick up your phone and shoot an unbelievably high quality video that you can edit on your phone and upload in an instant. The transformation on the technical side is revolutionary. And I think it's opened up the potential for other people to tell better stories that inspire people to buy stuff they didn't know they need. It goes back to what I learned at the Jim Henson company. You know, if you put your audience first and create content that it inspires them to go on a journey they never expected. That's the kind of content that's going to make an impact in your business. Sure, you can create how-to videos and tutorial videos. You know, you can kind of take the Jenny Doan approach, um, and that's a fine approach. But I think we're moving into maybe the third era. I think of online video. The first being, you know, hey, I can do product demos online, and I can show you what you're buying instead of just tell you what you're buying. The second era was kind of the how-to and demand gen era where you could introduce your product using a variety of video types to introduce your audience to a product they'd never seen before. And I think today we're, we're at, in an age where you can create and build an audience that's there for the video primarily and never expected to buy a product but will um, and they'll buy anything. Like it doesn't matter if you sell quilts, you can sell socks too because they've fallen in love with the format of the content, they've fallen in love with the talent behind the content and they've fallen in love with the brand you've built instead of just the product you're selling. Um, and so, you know, I'm excited to see much more story driven content that's uh, that's higher quality because uh, not that the I, I don't mean in production value because the production value I think is so high quality these days with just the basic stuff. I mean high quality in the story you're telling um, and the audience you're building. I think we'll see a bigger shift over the next five years to brands that are building content that people want um, before they even want the product the company sells. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, with like Instagram and TikTok and those getting used so much more. Some of the fastest impulse purchases that I've ever made were yeah. just from scrolling and seeing a video and it's, you know, not a how-to. It's it's like a very artistically created, like, here, let me yeah. show you the cool thing about this product. And then, oh my God, I got to click buy now. And I can absolutely. nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can. It's pretty amazing. And I'm curious, I appreciate how you just broke that down into those three phases. But so, you know, especially in light of the past couple of years and, you know, COVID, especially when it was really initially starting, you know, how much of these uh, trends in phase three would you say happened because of COVID versus, you know, they were already kind of happening and maybe they were propelled because of COVID. But I guess what I'm asking, you know, what what was what came out of COVID that maybe wouldn't have if it, you know, the pandemic hadn't taken place? Yeah, well, I, th I mean, uh, I think the biggest shift um, was a shift to more live video um, during COVID. If, if COVID actually, yeah, sure, I think COVID accelerated the desire and need to create video on the product or brand side. Um, but I think that was just an acceleration and it was a trend that was already there. I think the one thing that I had not seen being utilized very often, but all of a sudden saw explode during COVID was the use of live video. Um, and I saw some really innovative uses, you know, people had been doing things like, you know, Facebook live um, broadcasts that, that felt more like home shopping network, um, you know, uh, like kind of pitch shows. 
Um, and they were unbelievably effective during COVID because people were stuck, you know, sitting around wondering what to do next and all of a sudden found themselves tuning into an hour and a half live long show about like fashion trends from someone who sells a bunch of fashion items, right? Like that is just genius. And that I do not believe, you know, existed in the volume or the quantity or the quality before COVID and, and is a direct result of COVID. And I think it's one that's not going away. And I think it's one underutilized by most brands. Like if you think like home shopping network on the audience side, like, like you can't just sell a product. You've got to be able to think about what does the audience really desire and how can you build an hour long live program around selling them a bunch of stuff that they didn't realize they needed because you, un you truly understand the audience. Yep. And people, they crave that interaction, right? They want to oh, feel like somebody it. is talking to them and having that yes. personal experience like you, you get in the store. And Amazon's doing it now. And they, you know, they've been doing it for a while, too. It's like a watch party, you know? And I think that's what COVID helped us with. It helped us feel like we can actually consume content together without being together. Um, and I think for a whole generation, that was a new idea. For, for, for one whole generation, it's something that had been happening, but not happening in an organized way. And there are whole communities that have sprouted up, you know, to, to get back to brandscaping. You know, brandscaping is all about kind of partnering with other brands to get access to your audience in a new way. I saw people doing live video kind of collabs, uh, you know, with brands that I don't think they would have partnered with before COVID. But they realized, you know, I only have two products. You have four products. It'd be great if we got together and helped our audience understand how all of these products can work together to create a better you, right? Um, and that was phenomenal to see. And I'm, and I'm glad you just touched on it and you, you just gave it at a high level. Can you talk to us about, you know, Brandscaping and Town Inc? Like what are, give us, you know, the basic premise and why sure. you felt like you needed to write them. Well, Brandscaping uh, is something I'm really passionate about. It's, it's, it, the book came out in 2012, but I honestly believe it's more relevant today than it was then. And maybe some of the examples are old, but the concept is great. The idea is that you don't necessarily need to pay for access to audience anymore. Um, and your ability to find and connect and collaborate with brands and, and especially influencers in new and inventive ways has never been possible in the history of commerce. Um, until now. And so the book is kind of a recipe for truly understanding what makes a great, you know, content partnership and brand partnership. Uh, and I think the biggest mistake that people are making today is looking at influencers and brand partnerships as just one offs, like, we just need a mention and we'll pay for a mention and a post and a thing, right? Uh, the best and most profitable and successful partnerships are coming out of longer term, you know, uh, product and innovation concepts that are true partnerships between an influencer or two brands. Um, and so I think, so that's brandscaping and town Inc. Town Inc. actually came out of uh, my, my desire to see uh, small and medium sized cities and towns kind of rebuild their success in a new world. And so the whole idea is how do you actually market the place you're doing business just as much, if not more than the business you do. And if you sell a product right now, that it, you know anywhere in the world it, you you can buy it anywhere in the world and it seems counterintuitive that where your product is made could be relevant but it turned out in all the research i did and the kind of case studies in the book that when you uh, when you actually market the place you do business along with the business you do you make a huge impact in the community just like jenny doan did but you also actually attach 
um, a, a meaning to the place. A good example, a quick one, by the way, is a Shinola. I don't know if you're familiar with Shinola from Detroit. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, it, you know, Shinola was an old brand that was re- resurrected by a, a venture capitalist who wanted to localize the brand. And he basically went all over the country. This is the most amazing case study I've ever seen. He went all over the country asking people how much they'd pay for a pen. And they'd, he'd say, like, this pen was made in China. And they'd say, oh, it's $5. I'll pay for that. And then he'd, he'd pull out a very similar pen and say, how much would you pay for this pen? <clears throat> it was made in America. And they'd say $10. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then he'd, he'd, he'd do all different cities all over the United States, like Austin or it was you know made in Chicago. And the highest grossing pen, the one that would go for 15 bucks every time, on average, was if it was made in Detroit. So that's when he decided to move his business from Dallas and brand it Shinola Detroit. And he took over a six floor building in, in the in an old GM building and started churning out really high end watches. And today, you know, Shinola is a $200 million business that's built around localizing a brand that you can buy anywhere. And it's it capitalizes on the connotations of Detroit as a manufacturing hub and uh, and by the way, they had one of the best about us pages I've ever read. So that's what Town Inc is about, like actually leveraging the place you do business to help market your product as unique and different. I love that. And and Amber Engine's actually based in Detroit, so that very much so hit home. Very familiar with that brand. So there you um, go. Yeah, I love that. Well, you know, I, I, we're we're coming up to time. You know, a couple of the last things that I wanted to ask you about, though. So, you know, in the context of brandscaping, you just gave us the the overview, and we talked about the awesome story with Jenny and the quilting business yeah. in that small town. You know, and it seems like it makes sense. You know, companies should be putting their consumer first when they're developing the brand because that's ultimately how you're going to convey the message that they want to hear. But how do you recommend brands and businesses force themselves to do this consistently, right? Obviously, if you have an entrepreneur who's leading from the top, that's awesome. But, you know, how much of it comes down to values and mission or, you know, I guess, can you speak to that I, a little bit? Yeah, I don't, um, I'm, I'm not a big believer in like printed values and mission statements as much as I am a believer in constant communication with an existing customer. And from the top down, you know, I think like, I think the bigger the business gets, the more complicated the org chart gets, the farther and farther the customer gets away from most of the people in the organization. You're left with like your customer service team and maybe a salesperson or two that's maybe doing, you know, distribution deals that has any semblance or understanding of what the customer is facing and what they really believe or think. And you then you have, you know, tiers and tiers above that all the way up to a C-level executive who hasn't talked to a customer in three, six, nine months, sometimes years, to be totally frank. They haven't had a true conversation with a customer. They haven't gone to visit a customer. And if you want to stay customer focused, you want to interact with your customers on a daily basis, literally daily. So, you know, I know and I, I believe that some of the most successful CEOs in the world uh, take time out of every single day to communicate with a customer. Sometimes it's just an email note or a question or a support concern that they want to get involved in. Sometimes it's a full-on half-hour, 45-minute phone call with a customer, not because they were upset or angry, because they're one of the best customers in the book and they want to thank them for their business and talk about what they should, what they want next, what they need, what their life is like. That's how you keep yourself grounded and customer-focused. You, you know, there's nothing, there's no substitution for asking a customer what they read instead of sending out a survey hoping they'll check some boxes and tell you what they read. So if you want to know what they're consuming, 
you have to listen for it um, just as much as you have to ask for it. So my best, best advice is to spend some time with the customer. Yeah. Spend some time with the customer and make sure you have those feedback loops internally, right? It sounds like what yeah. you're saying is make sure that gets put up to the C-level or up to the highest levels in the 100%. company and, you know, dispersed across. What I think what I'm saying, Nate, is it actually has to start at the top instead of dispersed up. I'm saying the CEO, if the CEO makes it a priority to communicate and interact with customers every day, the same will happen the rest of the way down. Um and yeah. it's only when it's supposed to be driven from the bottom up that I I think it does fall apart. No, and that's that's a very that's I'm glad that you made that distinction. That's a very fair point. Because um, a lot of times, even in the in the software world, right, you have people that are out talking to the companies, and you know they're bringing that back up to marketing, and then it just gets lost, right? So you exactly. absolutely need visibility from the top. I love that. Um, well, you know, we've talked about a lot of things and given that you are so much of a forward thinker, what I'd love to leave our audience with, you know, what is a trend that you're excited about and watching, right? That can be a technology trend. It can be marketing more so related. I guess what's exciting to you right now? A lot of things, I guess, but what is it? Well, I'll say the one thing that is excited me and maybe blow my mind more than anything else was I had a conversation with a gentleman who sells salsa like, you know, chips and salsa salsa <laughs> out of... Uh, As opposed of, to all the other kinds of salsa. Well, I wasn't sure if the listener might hear me say seltzer or something. Uh, so I was like, okay, I wanted it. to be really clear that it's salsa. <laughs> so he makes his own salsa. It's a small business. He's based in Southern California. And, you know, he was, he's been looking for, like, the, the marketing silver bullet to make his salsa go, you know, crazy. But he's doing pretty decent sales. And when I was talking to him, I said, what are you, you know, how are you generating sales? And he said, most of it's peer-to-peer -peer and I sell through WhatsApp. Now, I'm not a WhatsApp user. And if you're in America and, you, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're probably not that familiar with WhatsApp. Maybe you've used it a couple times. I don't, Nate, have you, do you use it a lot? No, I know what it is, but I, I agree yeah. with you. I think it's probably not as common. Yeah, but it's one of the most used apps in the rest of the world, right? So yep. he sells to a lot of Latin Americans and specifically Mexicans who are transplants into Southern California. And they love WhatsApp. They use it to communicate with their family members at home and even within the family in California. Uh, and so what he's done, and I've never seen this before, he, I actually went through the process. He has a little shop on WhatsApp. So if you can communicate with him on WhatsApp and you say, hey, what salsas do you have in stock? It sends you like an inventory, a little shopping cart you can add to in WhatsApp. So I'm having a conversation. I'm trying to make this really clear because it blew my mind. I'm having a conversation with him and I can add stuff to my cart and then I can say, yeah, please send me these three salsas. And then he says, no problem. Here's my Venmo account. I send him the money. He sends me a shipping confirmation all on WhatsApp. I never went to his e-commerce store. I never, I don't know if he has a web address. I don't know anything except for his WhatsApp phone number. So for me, what the revelation was like everybody's talked about conversational commerce. I had never seen it actually happen until an experience with one man who sells salsa like door to door basically in California. And that for me was mind blowing. So what trend am I following and what do I think every you know, product or consumer brand should be looking at? I, I think they should be looking at what, what Cesar is doing with his salsa on WhatsApp because I think it's a transformation in the way we purchase. 
I love that. I think, and I, you know, there's an interview that I just did recently that I think will pique your interest, and it, it's all about that, right? In the United States, we don't, you know, we had the the desktop revolution. The mobile phone came after that, whereas right. in a lot of other parts of the world, they didn't desktops didn't proliferate nearly as much. So, so it, to your point, it's fascinating, and I agree. I I am looking forward to the day where I can make my purchases through text. If that's a safe, a safe way to do that, I am totally on board with it. And that's what what's I was. I, and the salsa is really good, by the way. <laughs> so, and I, yeah, I've never, I've never transacted like that, back, and and I can't wait to do it again. Awesome, I love that. That's a great, great trend, and I appreciate you sharing it. Well, you know, Andrew, this has been a fantastic conversation. Where can our listeners get in touch with you if they want to? You know, if anything we talked about resonated, they want to bring you on for a speaking sure. engagement. Well, you can find me at akadrewdavis.com, like aka also known as drewdavis.com. Uh, and you, the best way to find me actually is on LinkedIn. So just search for Andrew Davis, look for the guy with the bow tie and the orange glasses and, and connect with me there. I can't wait to, to chat. Awesome. That sounds good. Well, thank you very much for sharing your time with us. Uh, and we look forward to having you on again in the future. This is awesome, Nate. Thanks for the coffee. That's it for this episode of e-commerce with coffee powered by Amber Engine. If you haven't gotten your fix yet, be sure to get more e-commerce brand secrets on our website at amberengine.com. And don't forget to subscribe for more episodes.